0: The Jockey Club has proposed setting a limit on how many times a year a stallion can mate. You can imagine that's drawn quite a bit of reaction from across the industry. We'll get the opinion of an impartial but informed observer. Plus, how do you stretch a horse's muscles? And for that matter, how do you strengthen them after a horse has undergone surgery? The answer could strengthen not just the muscles, but the bond between the horse and its owner. We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll And they're off. As they move to the top of the straight. it's a hit on big finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can get us as well on YouTube, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com, or your podcatcher app, and of course in the listen tab at ESPN.com. And we want to make sure you vote for us in the upcoming Fan Choice Awards at America's Best Racing. It happens in November after the Breeders' Cup. And yes, Best Racing Podcast is one of the categories. So you know what to do, ITG Army. If you like this show, vote for us in November in the Fan Choice Awards at americasbestracing.net. Just after Labor Day, the Jockey Club here in the United States issued a press release saying that it is considering a new rule to limit how many foals a stallion can sire in a given year. The number being floated is 140, that no stallion could father more than 140 offspring a year. The reason for this, says the Jockey Club, is that too few stallions are siring too great a percentage of the foal crop. According to the organization's press release, Forty-three stallions were reported to have bred 140 or more mares this year, accounting for more than a quarter of all foals to be born in 2020. The Jockey Club is concerned about the gene pool becoming too concentrated. Now, let's be clear. The 140 mating limit is not a rule, at least, not yet. The Jockey Club is considering it. Nonetheless, the idea is drawing quite a bit of reaction across the industry. Our hope here on this show, and the reason we've been a little late in getting a new show up for you, is that we wanted to find an impartial yet informed observer to weigh in on the issue, and finally we have found such a person. Frank Mitchell is a renowned bloodstock expert, writing for a number of publications including the Pollock Report as well as Biodata Track International, and we are pleased to welcome back here to Win the Gate, Frank Mitchell. Let's break this down in a couple of different ways. First of all, in terms of the actual horses themselves and their performances, what are the benefits of diversity as opposed to concentrating the evolution of the breed with a few high-performing stallions?
1: Well, for the, for the purposes of the breed, the tendency historically is for the best athletes to be the best size overall. But... There's always a significant minority of very good to excellent stallions who are not the top of the tree on the race course. You only have to look at horses like Mr. Prospector, who went to stud in Florida, and more recently, Congrats, who went to stud in Florida and became leading freshman sire, and then the absolute touchstone of the modern horse who didn't have a an extensive race record was Danzig. Danzig couldn't find a home at stud today. He he almost didn't find one to begin with, but his his trainer and owner believed in him so much that they convinced Seth Hancock to go ahead and put him to studs in the rest of history. And those horses are still out there. Uh, you know, they're a very small minority. A Danzig type that doesn't win a stake is going to be a very small minority of the good stallions. But um, the general effect capping the books is going to help more stallions that are on the margins get a realistic shot at stunts.
0: Is it best for the breed to have diversity or is it best to concentrate the breed with a few high-performing stallions?
1: Well, that is kind of a two-edged sword. Most people say we need to have more diversity and that is a good thing for the stability and the genetic viability of the breed. Because if, if you get too narrow a bottleneck genetically, you can create problems for yourself. But the the horses that are superior sires are always a very small minority of the stallions that stud, and they just they congregate and they they tend to go one way and then the other in terms of their population and the lines and the Northern dancer line has just taken over almost the whole world. It hasn't done to nearly such an extent here in the States, thanks to the work of bold ruler through his son, such as secretariat in the broodmare line and Seattle slew and AP Indy through the mail line, as well as some kind of outlier mail line. So that it's, we see it here in Kentucky, to a much less extent than a breeding population, say, in Australia, which is just, like, top-to-bottom Danzig and Danehill generation after generation. If you go through some of those pedigrees, you'll see three and four crosses sometimes of northern Dancer within four generations. And it's like, whoa. So the genetic viability is, is improved by having greater variety but the actual bottom line performance seems to follow certain lines so that the more of certain stallions that you get into a pedigree, the better the results. So it's a conflict that breeders and breeding have to have to deal with and have had to deal with ever since the breed started to congeal and really take on lines back in the
0: 1700s. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You were talking about the quality of the offspring, and you were talking about the Hancocks. Now, obviously, a lot of people have weighed in on this issue. One of them in the Thoroughbred Daily News was Arthur Hancock of Stone Farm, one of the leading figures in this industry in America for several decades. He said that his father, the legendary Bull Hancock, had said to him that overbreeding a stallion compromises the quality of the offspring. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, it certainly minimizes your options for getting the best. You're diluting the product. And the more you dilute it, the less excellence you can expect to have. But that said, everybody wants to breed the Bolrula. And, you know. Bull Hancock believed what he said because you didn't see Bold River breeding any supersized books. I mean, he was a, a very fertile stallion, very good libido. Everything was great with him. Did not breed a large book. Nobody bred a large book up until the 90s.
0: Now, in, in that regard, you're talking about the quality of the horses, right? Yes. Because there's also the money issue, too. You know, we all know that sometimes less can be more if you have something really valuable, like, I don't know, a specially-issued coin series. And only a few are made. They'll each be more valuable. So what is more at play here, the money issue or the quality issue?
1: I think it's the quality issue that the Jockey Club is addressing. And also... The jockey club's goal is to advance and benefit the Thoroughbred breed and racing in America. And that's one of their slogan, but that's one of their reasons for being. And to do that, they try to encourage Thoroughbred racing and breeding to command the interest of the public as well as its confidence and favorable opinion. And I think that favorable opinion should not be underestimated in this day of wide social media and television, radio, internet, everything. What do you mean? One of the issues of the the mega books is the popular feeling that you'll see on blogs and post response lines and things of that is that the breeders in quotation marks are just breeding anything to the the best horses. And as a result, you get a lot of not so good sons and daughters of these best stallions that end up not having home when they don't succeed on the racetrack and then going into what. And I think that one of the small things in the big picture that the jockey club is looking at is people's perception perception of racing and breeding. And how the overbreeding of a horse seems to be almost too financially driven and caught perhaps causing problems uh, in terms of unproductive progeny that have to be found a home for at some fashion along the way.
0: Frank Mitchell is with us here on In the Gate. He services a whole lot of masters when it comes to uh, bloodstock. There's the Bloodstock in the Bluegrass blog that he does. He writes for the Pollock Report, services Biodata Track International. We could go on and on and on. You get the idea. So this brings us back to the age-old question here, when you determine whether a horse would do well in breeding, how important is the pedigree, say, a son of Tappet, of whom there are over 100 produced a year, versus whether this horse has won a group or grade one race?
1: Well, the horse who cannot win a grade one race is really up against it in the current breeding scheme. It's very, very difficult for a non-grade one winner to find a good home at stud where he will be breeding a reasonably good-sized book of mares that would give him a chance at being a success. He really has to have something going for him besides the racing.
0: You mean besides yeah. the breeding? Yeah. So in other words, like like when the green monkey only ran three times, but was the subject of the greatest bidding war in in breeding history because of his breeding. Even though his breeding was good, he didn't even win so much as an allowance race and wasn't considered a stud prospect. Is that where you're getting at?
1: He did go to stud. Uh, He was a beautiful horse. And he did go to stud and did nothing. Um, But today... Even even more than in you know, ten years ago when the green monkey was going to stud, even today it is so competitive that any stallion prospect who doesn't have a Group One or Grade One to his name is pretty much out of luck. And then he has to have enough pedigree that the the, pedig- the, the grade one gets him a slot at stud. The pedigree determines how much he can stand for.
0: Now, I don't have to tell you how the number of starts a horse makes in its racing career has gone way down in the last 20 or so years. I mean, even as late as 20 years ago, a horse could make 40 career starts. Now it's more like 9 or 10. So what impact might a potential cap of 140 matings a year have on keeping horses around to race longer?
1: That would be a delightful side benefit for you and me and the sport if by capping the stud book, we actually got a little more racing out of some of these horses that are so nice. I mean, it's very nice to see so many of them going to stud sound, but you'd really like to see them race 10, 15, 20 more times.
0: Do you think that's a possibility?
1: I think it is a possibility. The cap is only going to affect three or four dozen stallions. I mean, there are only three or four dozen stallions who breed more than 140 bears. It's not going to be a revolutionary change. It is going to put a lid on the very most popular stallions, which currently is about three and a half dozen. But, you know, several of those will only, you know, be a change of five or 10, 15. There are a handful that the change will mean a, ch- a reduction of 50 or 100 members. There are very few of those, but a big lick. And the, the change for them would obviously be quite noticeable, and it would be reflected in the stud fee. I mean, the stud fee on a couple of the horses would effectively double
0: now here's the thing. If the jockey club actually passes this hundred and forty cap rule, what are the odds that it would be struck down in court as a restraint of trade?
1: I mean, I don't believe the jockey club would be floating this idea if they hadn't worked it through their legal department in great detail. And an American court followed the precedent of the Australian court findings uh, of a few years ago where a man in Australia tried to introduce artificial insemination and and he, he argued that not allowing artificial insemination was restraint of trade. The court struck it down and said, no, jockey club's rules are the jockey club's rules. And if an American court followed that line of reasoning, the Jockey Club's rule or the Jockey Club's rule. It's not slanted towards one group or person or anything. It's just across the board. And I, I suspect that they have looked at it in great detail and are pretty sure that it would hold up. And, you know, they don't really have to convince the whole world. They only have to convince, say, 20 major breeders or 20 major stallion owners.
0: This story is not going away. It's certainly going to gather some momentum as the uh, Jockey Club continues to ponder this. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Mitchell. This is just the kind of perspective we needed, and it was worth the wait.
1: Well, I'm glad to help. Anytime, give me a call.
0: We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, when was the last time you saw a horse do a pike the way we do to strengthen the core muscles? Well, how do you build up those muscles, especially when a horse has surgery for colic? A couple of researchers have found an innovative way to do it, so don't go away. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. You know that when it's time for you to do any kind of physical exercise, you know, maybe you're listening to this podcast at the gym, that would be great. You know that before you start your heavy lifting, you need to do two things. Warm up and stretch. So you do some treadmill, maybe some elliptical, and then you stretch. If you're working your legs, you stretch the old hammies, the quads, calves, etc. You know the deal. But what if you're a horse? How do you stretch your muscles if you're a horse? I don't see a horse swinging its legs over a bar and leaning into them the way we do to stretch our legs. And what about when a horse has surgery, for colic, let's say, and loses muscle tone? How do you bring the horse's muscles back up to their previous levels so they can get back to work? Have you ever thought about that? Fortunately, researchers at Michigan State's College of Veterinary Medicine have thought quite a bit about these questions, their findings have been published recently in the Journal of Equine Veterinary Science and we have a couple of those researchers with us here to talk about them. We welcome Doctors Susan Holcomb and Stephanie Volberg for the first time here to In the Gate. First of all, Dr. Holcomb, if you have a horse that's undergone surgery, the horse obviously needs to rehabilitate the muscles in that area. So you use something called CARE, core abdominal rehabilitation exercises. Now, Horses can't do sit-ups or pikes, so what does core exercise entail for them?
2: These were all horses that had major abdominal surgery. It's called colic surgery, but they had abdominal problems that required a surgical correction. And so we make an incision that's 20 to 30 centimeters on the bottom of the abdomen, and then that incision has to heal, and that takes about 30 days. And then there's rehabilitation after that where horses spend periods of time in paddocks and out in pastures. What we decided was once we knew that that incision was strong, so that their body wall was strong, we had horses start a program of exercises that involved carrot stretches. So the owner of the horse would bait the horse with a carrot or a treat And the horses learned these exercises, and there were things that targeted their abdominal muscles to contract, their backs to contract, and over time, it made their core stronger.
0: So paint a picture for us of what that looks like.
2: Okay, so the horse comes out of its stall, and the owner has the horse stand still, and the horse may, with following the treat, may take its neck And reach under all the way underneath and try to touch its abdomen with its nose. Or it'll take its nose and go all the way around to its side and bend. So the horses are doing exercises that make them lift their backs and contract their abdomens. And then they get the treat.
0: How often do they do these?
2: They do these exercises every day. And we had a program that increased the number of repetitions, just like a person would. They increased the number of repetitions of the exercises each day. What we also found that was interesting, the horse owners and trainers really enjoyed this because it gives them something to do each day with their horse. The horses loved it and, in fact, would come out of the stall and start as soon as they were in position, start doing the exercises because they knew they were going to be rewarded with these small treats or carrots. And so it was a really positive experience for the trainers and the horses.
0: Dr. Stephanie Wahlberg, don't the horses eventually get wise to this and figure out a way to shortcut to get the treat?
3: Actually, they don't because it's the onus is on the owner to ensure that the exercises are done properly. And the exercises that we've instructed them to do are explained in a DVD and in a book that Neural Stubbs and Dr. Hilly Clayton that worked at the McVale Performance Center developed this program. So it's a really well-described program that teaches the horse owners how to do the exercises. And the horses actually seem to quite enjoy it. And they know that if they do it properly, then they, they get rewarded with the treat and they follow that carrot to exactly the right place so that you can ensure that they're engaging all of their muscles. And I kind of think if we did that with humans, you know, if there were some treats involved on in some of the exercises and that was an immediate reward, more people might want to participate in the correct fashion as well.
0: Yeah, that would certainly help things at five o'clock in the morning when I'm in the gym. So Dr. Wahlberg, how common is this care practice for a horse that's had abdominal surgery?
3: Well, it hasn't been common up to now. And I think that's what's given this study such a push in the media. We've gotten a lot of coverage and Dr. Holcomb and Tara Shearer, who did the study, have been asked to speak at a number of conferences now because people are seeing that this would actually really benefit the horses and they could get them back into competition and actually even perform better than they did before they started if they use these exercises to strengthen the horse's core. So I think the awareness has really been created by publishing and performing this
0: study here at Michigan State. Dr. Holcomb, what were the time intervals of measuring the horse's progress?
3: So what we did was
2: after the first 30 days after the horse had surgery, uh, we certainly were in communication with the horse owners and trainers just to find out about the basic health of the animal. And then if the incision had healed as we anticipated, the exercises started and there was a ramp up in intensity and number of repetitions each week. We did have horses in the study that had problems with their incisions. We monitored those things and they did those horses did not start the exercises until their incisions had completely healed. And then we were in communication with these clients really months uh, and in sometimes months after the surgery to find out how the animals were doing and how they had entered training and then competition. And for some of the horses, it was a couple of years later that we got back to all of these people to find out, in the end, how had the horse performed? Had the horse's performance improved or not? So it, it was it was a study that took place over a couple of
0: years. We're chatting with doctors Susan Holcomb and Stephanie Wahlberg of Michigan State's College of Veterinary Medicine here on In the Gate. So, Doctor Wahlberg, your team implemented basically four weeks, it seems, of care rehabilitation to these horses in your study. How did you measure how the horses had progressed?
3: I think I'm going to let Dr. Holcomb uh, answer that question, because she's really got that under control.
2: The way we assessed progress was really based on owners and trainers. So this study was a retrospective study, where retrospectively we went back and spoke to horse owners and trainers about how their horses performed these exercises and then how the horses performed, including their ability to start back into work, to start into full training and then competition.
0: So this was more a subjective study than measuring hard data.
2: That is exactly right. This initial study, which is the first time we've tried to implement this exercise regime in clinical patients this was very subjective. Dr. Stubbs and Dr. Clayton did provide some objective information about the efficacy of these exercises and how these exercises would enhance certain muscles of the back. So based on those data, that's what gave us really the impetus to try this in our clinical patients.
0: So Dr. Wahlberg, what kinds of horses were used in this study?
3: They were dressage horses, and they were uh, jumping horses that were part of the study.
0: What kind of difference or similarity might there be between those and thoroughbreds when it comes to body type and stress on particular parts you know, versus horses that are mainly for jumping?
3: There were some thoroughbreds in this study as well, and thoroughbreds, are used at young ages for racing. And then they can also be used for a number of these other disciplines as well. But I think core strength is really important for all of those disciplines. For core strength for jumping horses is really important as they propel themselves up and over the fences and they're carrying a rider. For dressage horses, core strength is really important because it's a very gymnastic-like exercise and they have to have a lot of suppleness, and flexibility and core strength to perform those exercises. And then if you watch thoroughbred racehorses running and you see the incredible stretch that they have through each stride, you'll see how much their abdominal muscles really tuck up and they really fully extend and flex their back through that entire gallop stride. So its core abdominal strength is also really important in those thoroughbred horses as
0: well. So you're basically getting to my final question, which is what is the big takeaway from this study? Let's start with Dr. Holcomb.
2: I think the big takeaway from this study is like in people, bed rest for horses is a horrible thing that we need to minimize. So rehabilitating a horse after surgery to strengthen the core and the back muscles is going to enhance that horse's ability to be sound, even if it's a horse that is not an athlete, but certainly if that horse is an athlete and needing to go back to competition, the sooner we can start that horse into rehabilitation and strengthening program, the better, the better for performance. Another takeaway is that these exercises were a very positive thing for both the horses and the horse owners. It was something they could do together, and we found that these horses uh, really enjoyed doing these exercises as part of their rehab probably because they got a reward
0: yeah i think we need to visit more on that uh human reward in the gym kind of thing Ugh. i'm liking the way that sounds <laughs> well thank you ladies both <laughs> so much this is really really interesting for horse owners to consider as they rehabilitate their horses thank you so much thank,
3: thank you very you, we enjoyed
0: it our thanks once again to doctors susan holcomb and stephanie ballberg as well as frank mitchell He might be overshadowed by Mike Smith, who rides infrequently, yet parachutes in to win the biggest stakes, but John Velasquez has been the industry standard for two decades, and he shows no imminent sign of applying the brakes. In fact, Velasquez now can claim more graded stakes victories than any jockey in the U.S. or Canada. His 661st moved Jerry Bailey's record aside, but he doesn't recite records as daily mantras. Velasquez is as dedicated to the welfare of all riders as the president of the union, the Jockey's Guild. The equine injury database, a recent innovation, is the most significant tool that he helped build. Velazquez is also North America's highest earning rider and last year reached 6,000 wins overall. So over 10% of his triumphs have come in graded stakes, both on and off track, Johnny V stands tall. You can get us on YouTube, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com, or your Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab at ESPN.com. And we want to make sure you vote for us in the upcoming Fan Choice Awards at America's Best Racing.net. It happens in November after the Breeders' Cup. And yes, Best Racing Podcast is one of the categories. So, you know what to do, ITG Army. If you like this show, vote for us in November in the Fan Choice Awards at americasbestracing.net. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's in the gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.